1: let's get this show on the road here there we go okay in five four three two and one and welcome everyone to this episode of the real leaders podcast i'm your host kevin Edwards. joining us today is the ceo of transect the fearless comp- company please welcome miss laura huckabee jennings laura thanks for being with us today
0: thanks for having me kevin i'm glad to be here
1: well it's a pleasure to have you on and, and now that the name almost speaks for itself, The Fearless Company. So let's start there. Uh, Let's start with the origin of Transcend and how you got into this uh, courageous work.
0: Thanks, Kevin. Well, so the company will be 20 years old this year, so we've been doing this quite a while now. And one of the things we realized is that um, I started working with companies on strategy and how do I build. Uh, better you know, Fortune 50 tools that would apply to smaller businesses, mid-sized businesses. What we realized is one of the things that really held organizations back was um, sometimes know-how, but less of know-how and more about how people interacted and the people approached their business and the way they were uh, willing to ask for help, willing to be wrong, willing to be uh, yeah. humble enough to know that they were great engineers, but that didn't necessarily make them good at accounting or HR or other disciplines. Um, and that's how we we talked about fearlessness is that ability to step beyond your fear, step into the fear and do the thing that you're a little bit afraid of, because that's where all of the real growth and interesting um, innovation takes place.
1: Interesting. And So a lot of the people listening to this will be like, well, what's the difference between, you know, Fortune 50 <laughs> leadership? And it's got to be different than, you know, where I'm at as a small business owner. What do you what do you think about that? How's leadership change and how's it different?
0: Yeah, so I think one of the things that the really big companies uh, tend to do well is it's much more structured and thoughtful. Um, A lot of database decision making, they've got a lot of um, resources at hand to build systems and processes. And they really give a lot of thought to what does good leadership look like in our organization to meet the needs of our market. Uh, Small businesses don't have the luxury of doing all that thinking. So would like them to be able to piggyback on uh, some of what's learned in big companies and take the pieces that are most useful for them. In a small business, um, even a medium-sized business, you're so concerned with the day-to-day of what do I need to get done today? What's my project? Who's my next customer? How do I get this invoice paid? How do I create this product? that um, you don't often have the luxury to step back and go, now, wait a second, what is the impact that my leadership is having on the success of the organization? What impact am I having on my customers, my suppliers, my employees, and how could that impact be more positive? Mm -hmm.
1: So let's start with the process then. You say a lot of these big organizations, you know, they have resources. they have got some process. When you approach an organization, you start to get to know what's going on. Um, What's the process that you walk these leaders and these organizations through?
0: We often start with trying to figure out what do, you, what do you stand for? So some standard uh, strategy things, or sort a of mission vision. And then we focus quite a lot on values and, and often use an exercise around a noble purpose. So what is it, you, the change you're trying to create in the world? Very few companies would say that our purpose is really just to make money. <laughs> Although for some, I think maybe it is. What is it beyond you know, making a living? Of course, everyone's entitled to that. and We want that to happen. But beyond that, what is it you're trying to create in the world? So getting really clear on that. And then we talk a lot about um, work with them to define what are the values that drive your organization to be more successful in the marketplace than others. And then beyond that, how do you define those values in terms of um, behaviors you're looking for? How do you recruit? How do you measure performance against the values and not just against a a numeric metric of dollars, right? So we really want people to get Super clear on if you're trying to build something transformative that's going to make a big difference in the world. Are you aligning all of the activities of your organization towards that goal or are some of the things misaligned?
1: And and how does that work for organizations who may have not have done that in the past? Like what what's the average time, or I guess how long does it take to really <laughs> transform this culture into one who embraces the overall recording
0: vision? in progress? Uh, I think the question is really, how long is a piece of string? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so it varies a lot. So if, if they've never done this kind of work before, often we start with introducing the, the concepts and helping them understand why it would be important for them to do some of this work. And it can take, um, you know, several days at an offsite, or it could take months if they want to and involve the employees, which we often recommend. We don't want one person deciding, well, here's our new culture, and then announcing it we really want engagement from the people doing the work to say what, what is the current culture and are there small shifts we can make to make us more successful. So it really takes a long time. And really, the larger the organization is, the longer it takes to transform because you're really looking at a, a top to bottom, changing the way that we measure people, the way we assign tasks, and the way we look at their performance. So it's, it can take a lot of time. We, we say usually think about three to five years.
1: Hmm. And what's some of the things that most companies run into that they didn't really foresee during these changes that you've you've kind of noticed?
0: Yeah, I think that um people are often surprised how much resistance to change there is. So a senior leadership team can say, there's this great new thing we're going to do, and then somewhere in middle management, people are going, "I don't want to do that. that's that's not that's not how we do things around here. And that that's surprising to leaders, that there's so much resistance to what's clearly in their mind a very good idea. Um, and really understanding that, that humans always resist change, that they don't drive themselves, that they lose control, and that there's a process you need to walk people through to make change, change more appealing, to allow people to, to walk into change. Otherwise, you're always going to have this resistance. Mm.
1: You know, one of the analogies I got tossed the other day, Laura, was like the CEOs of organizations are kind of like a captain of a cruise ship. It's like you know they're at the <laughs> at the top. You know they kind of look yeah. out. They're, they're they're looking so far ahead at the ocean, and yeah. when they make a little turn, they don't really understand all the inner workings that are going on in the boat with the staff members to make that big turn. Uh, yeah. How do you communicate with leaders to make sure that they're understanding their uh, employees' needs, concerns, and overall, just what's going inside or on inside the company?
0: Yeah, so we we walk through a lot of, of looking at the middle management and at frontline and seeing how are they experiencing something. We do a lot of sense-making in organizations. where We're pulling um, opinions and feelings and experiences from those other employees and then exposing that to senior leadership so the CEO can go, that wasn't my intention at all. Why are they feeling this way? And then we can start to say, well, you know, here's what you said and here's what they heard. We've got to bridge that gap. A lot lot of um, senior leaders seem to think that when they run a town hall or they send a company-wide email, that they're communicating. And in one sense they are, but it's broadcast. It's very one way. And what we're trying to do is create the two way so that they're getting the feedback, the questions, the dialogue, so that they're interacting with the employees and not just shipping something out. How often have you said something to someone and they totally misunderstood you? I'm sure that's never happened to you, Kevin.
1: <laughs> of course never.
0: <laughs> you said A and they heard B. Well, this happens in companies. It's almost like a giant telephone game where you know the, the message gets distorted, people hear different things, they don't like a particular word or they define it differently. And, and so you're not really communicating to the employees the way you think you are unless you have that feedback to allow you to correct and clarify and answer questions.
1: And, and how does one like get over that habit of being so up here and like like I, I sometimes think you know when I'm speaking with a lot of my teammates it's just like wah 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 because I'm <laughs> just going so fast and it's so much but if you can simplify it into like maybe metaphors or analogies and just kind of break it down it may be easier but what are your thoughts or your uh your advice really to leaders to to be aware of something like that? So
0: I think if there's many layers between you and the front line is to get down on the front line and do that front line job periodically. You know, So uh, one of the leaders I really admired uh, did a stint at the Gap. who was new to that company. And the whole first year, this person did retail jobs in Gap outlets across the world and really got a feel for what it looked like to work in a retail outlet. Um, maybe you don't have time for a whole year of that, but to make sure that periodically you're going back in, when I worked in uh, big consumer goods, periodically we go do store visits just mm. to go see what our product looked like on a shelf and how consumers in the store were interacting with it and understanding what that experience is right at the base level where the business happens. So, it's so easy to get stuck in a conference room behind a computer and everything's an abstraction and a spreadsheet and you really need to be able to interact with where the, where the work happens.
1: Mm. And Laura, I watched one of your videos about trust and for people listening out there, Laura's got a few videos, just go to her website. Uh you can see a lot of the, the good work that they've been doing over there. But one of your videos talked a lot about trust and where that resonated yeah. with me was, well, you know, maybe if I was working in the front lines, I could understand what they're going through, but would they tell me? You know, would they be able to have that trust to explain to, you know, a CEO or someone else who's in a higher position? This is actually what's going on. How do you build, you know, good trust uh, with your coworkers, yeah. your teammates, your employees?
0: There's, there's a, a couple of keys and, and it, it can take some time, but there's a way to shortcut this. And one of them is to demonstrate yourself as a leader, vulnerability. So vulnerability can take the form of, hey, I may be out of touch with what's happening in your job and I really need you to inform me so that I can make better decisions that help you do your job better and grow the company. But admitting that you don't know something, you need someone's help. Um, revealing things about yourself that maybe are maybe not the ways in which you're awesome, but maybe some of the ways that you struggle a little bit. Say, hey, I struggle sometimes to get out of my office and come see people, but I'm really making an effort here. Help me out. <laughs> mm. Right? Remind me if you don't see me in a cup for a couple of months that I need to come do another store visit. And asking for that help from people helps them to see you as a human and not as someone who's trying to be perfect. So I don't know if you've ever had one of these leaders, but there's some kind of these people that sort of pretend that appear somehow to be perfect.
1: Have
0: you ever had any of this?
1: <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, of course. And
0: what do, you, what do we think about those people? Do we trust them? Do we think they're real?
1: I almost feel like with those leaders, like that's the expectation and that's how I have to be. Yeah, I, I have is, to be
0: perfect. Yeah. yeah. And, and also that there's somehow that there's a little bit of lack of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Because we know that fundamentally there's no real perfect people, everybody's got flaws and things they struggle with, and that's normal that's human and so to show yourself as human allows your employees to also be human mm-hmm. right
1: absolutely and to share
0: with you their criticisms and their
1: concerns and how what about growth? you know like I think all all of these you know, leadership principles are are extremely important um how have you seen, in your experience, you know, these leadership uh, maneuvers correlate with growth in the organization? So that it's not growth that, you know, it's like you just said, that, that person at the top who's like always hitting their numbers, go 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 go, doesn't care about anyone yeah. else in the organization. But how how have you seen growth um, really increase with the changes you've made in these organizations?
0: So a lot of what we see is that the leaders that we work with start to grow new leaders, right? And so, so if you think about it, if you're making all the decisions in your company, there's one brain making all of the decisions. And so the more you can delegate decisions to competent decision makers and where you can grow people to have good judgment and understand where the company's headed, then you've got all those extra brains working on the problems in your organization. So what we really see is the best leaders start to grow new leaders. They, they delegate better. They train and mentor and coach more effectively, they give people stretch assignments, they start to trust more, and those leaders beneath them then step up. And when we see that happen, that, that leader at the top who used to have to make all the decisions is now to abstract themselves up another level of strategy and start thinking about you know, the next uh, product line they ought to launch or the new sector they ought to enter or a merger and acquisition target. They can go up another level instead of being stuck down here in the weeds. So that's, that's the primary thing we see. And each of those leaders beneath them then begin to grow leaders as well. And it, it can really um, increase the strategic capacity of an organization quite quickly.
1: Mm, I love that. And, and who are some of the leaders that you, know, you really admire when it comes to that skill of delegating work and uh, like, like the name of your company, transcending that vision, that, that philosophy throughout the culture?
0: So so there's a couple that I think about, but there's one that I've been admiring recently. And of course there's no perfect leaders, but every time I think about Mary Barra at GM, I get kind of excited about what she's doing over there. Uh, one of my favorite stories about Mary Barra was about um, these uh, dress code at GM, it used to be a big thick manual of, you know, in this circumstance, you should wear this and this is circ- very, very detailed. And she eliminated the entire thing and said, our dress code is dress appropriately. Two words, right? Mm. So we took this whole bureaucratic thing and we turned it into two words. And the the message behind it is, you know, as a manager, the environment you're working in, and you can instruct your employees on what the appropriate attire is for that type of work. Mm. If you're in the factory, you need hard-toe shoes and a hard hat and a safety vest. If you're going to the boardroom, you should probably be dressed in business attire. You know, the manager can do that job of managing and making decisions and communicating to their employees instead of having to refer to a manual that probably didn't cover every scenario anyway. So I think that that's a really sort of a bold and what I think of as a fearless move of saying, I don't feel like I have to document every single thing that's going to happen so that we have some policy that justifies what we're doing. I feel I trust my people to make really great decisions. And so I'm going to give discretion to the managers and responsibility for having that conversation with their employees about what the appropriate dress is.
1: Mm i love that just making you know these things have been ingrained in the organization much more simple but powerful in that move what about like complexity with uh you know rules of engagement or Mm -hmm. you know just simple little rules that you have in your organization how do you believe in like killing complexity and and kind of eliminating a lot of the nuances that you have just been ingrained in these organizations to unlock Productivity to give people more freedom, or I guess take, take me through your process when you go into an organization and you kind of see all of the the boundaries that people have to you know abide by.
0: So I, I think some of that comes back to the values if you're if you're a very structure driven regulation driven industry, some of that structure and complexity of, of regulation is going to come with it because that's the, the arena in which you work. In other places, it's less necessary. Um, We really try to, I hesitate to say take complexity out because as long as you've got human beings in an organization, it's complex by definition. There's pieces of it that may be simple and very easy to explain, but not so much. We like to abstract things to the principle behind it and not be so prescriptive in how you're going to execute something. Mm -hmm. So um, one of our principles for developing people, even in our own organization that that I've implemented is stretch, don't break. (laughs) So it seems very simple, but, you know, if I were working with you, Kevin, and I would recognize that there are areas where you could grow, I would want to make sure I was giving you assignments that stretched you, made you a little bit uncomfortable, but Mm. didn't freak you out, Mm. right? And so it's up to, in conversation to figure out what that is for you. And all of our employees, we work on that principle. It's where everybody's trying to grow and we're trying to give them those growth opportunities and we're going to stretch them as far as we can, but not so far that they "Quote unquote," break and feel that they're taking on too much and they're going to be unsuccessful.
1: I love this. Let's let's go into this a little bit deeper, especially for the listeners out there who are coming mm-hmm. into the new year. They're trying to, you know, swing for the fences and reach these goals. Yeah. What should yeah. they be thinking about during this um, goal setting process?
0: So the goals of the individual should be in the context of the goals of the organization. So if you haven't set them for your company yet, this is a great time to think about what's both stretch for us, but realistic, right? Based on the, the resources we have, the things we know we can go get, the plans we have in place, what's possible. And then when you look at each individual, we usually set two kinds of goals for people. One is a, some kind of numeric, whatever their job is, how do you measure success in the role? Maybe it's a sales role, we would put a revenue target on it, or profit, or sectors, or numbers of customers, but we also have what we think of as an organizational capacity goal. So an organizational capacity goal is how are you as an individual going to grow this year? What is it that you need to do to get better at your job, to be able to contribute more, to move towards your career goals, whatever those are? And it requires a couple of things. One is we have to be in conversation with the employee to hear what are their career ambitions? Where do they see themselves? What do they like? What do they wanna branch out into? Mm. Do they wanna be CEO one day or they really wanna you know, do something completely different? They wanna be in marketing instead of sales, great. How do we enable that and design a path for them to start growing and demonstrating some capability that would allow them to be there eventually?
1: I think that's really important, especially for employees. And I mean, we just threw an event and are uh, on an event in December, it talked about how to inspire employees yeah. in 2022. And like Great. doing all this research is like 80% of the people are willing to just to pick up their suitcase and leave tomorrow. Like that's the mm-hmm. state that we're in today. It's very true. One of the research things, you know, one of the pieces of research that came out of it was a lot of these employees feel like they've hit their ceiling. They're recognizing, you know, time is scarce and they've hit their ceiling in yep. the organization. Is that how you approach these individuals by making them think a little bit further? What's your take on helping employees understand that there's still more room to grow?
0: So I I think all people want to grow. The question is in what direction, how, and how quickly, not everybody wants the same thing. And you have to treat them as individuals with individual ambitions. A lot of our customers these days talk about people leaving for more money. And I'm, I'm looking at the numbers and I'm like, well, you know, is it really the reason? It feels like a lot of times leaving for money is a red herring. It's the easy thing to say to your past employer, well, they offered me more money. But it's not the real reason you left. You left because you didn't see growth for you in that organization. And, and, and your job wasn't very good. It was a terrible job. If you're going to do a terrible job anyway, it might as well pay better. So, so we talked to organizations about how do you make your workplace and your whole environment one that encourages people to be engaged and be excited to come to work there? Not every day is going to be a good day. Some days are hard. Some objectives you're going to miss, but it can always be a great environment to show up in. Mm -hmm. And you do that by supporting the whole person. And I'm not talking about being soft and letting anybody do whatever they want to. We're still meeting business objectives, but we're doing it in a way that acknowledges the whole person. And says, what is your growth plan? How can we get you there? How will we support you?
1: Do you have a preference on your reward system? Like, do you believe in rewarding uh, employees if they reach a goal? Like, wh- What's your take on the reward system?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, I, I think it depends, right? But in our own organization, we do uh, profit-sharing bonuses for our employees uh, based on their contributions to the year. We do uh, commissions if you're in a sales or front-facing role, so we do that as well but we believe in having a, a very robust, you know, living wage kind of base salary for everybody, regardless of the job. Mm. And then the rewards are shared. So no one gets a bonus less, you know, the company does well, and If the company does well, everybody gets a bonus.
1: Mm. Got it. And one of the other concepts that popped into my brain were, okay, and this may be more on management, uh, but mm-hmm. in terms of measuring, we talked about goal setting, in terms of measuring and checking in with employees, what do you prefer? I'm sure it's different on company, based on company company, but do you go on a quarterly basis? Do you go on a monthly basis, weekly basis? Like what is your frequency for checking in to make sure that you are measuring their goals?
0: So, for um, direct reports, we recommend that every manager have at least a monthly check in, right? That you talk about goals, expectations, how are things going, give and receive feedback. Receiving feedback is important too as a manager. How am I doing as your manager? What support do you need from me? Um, but that's the point where you say, say your goal was X, how's that coming? Your milestone for this month was supposed to be here, are you are you making progress towards that, are you meeting the milestone? And that allows you to course correct early before, you know, the, my worst uh, nightmare is when I, when I was in corporate world, we often did annual performance evaluations. We still have companies that do that, and it can be a useful practice. But the problem is you wait for a year to tell anybody that they're either doing a great job, but they're not. <laughs> and there's a, there's a lot of problems right. with doing it that way. This way, at least once a month, you're having the conversation about, you know, great job, keep up this, here's something you could tweak, or, you know, you're not really doing well in this job. What can we do about that? How do we have that conversation?
1: I saw another report from YPO the other day that actually said, you know, we just talked about workers and being like, oh, am I going to have job security? And, you know, am I, do I have room for growth? And really what was fascinating about this report was that CEOs are actually worried about their jobs right now. Mm -hmm. Um, What about failure? What's your take on failure and uh, making sure that we can be fearless in a time of uncertainty?
0: Yeah, I think... um Failure is very hard to embrace because we are mostly put our self-worth and what we've been successful at. I think it's um, really important to, to look at, we're going to fail sometimes. Hopefully the failures are small, but if you're a CEO and you're failing, what do you learn from that? What do you take away from it, right? So that if you take on another CEO role or you start another company, you're taking those lessons and you're building skills for the future. So every failure is an opportunity to examine what part of that failure was me and how would i do it differently next time
1: hmm.
0: what did i learn it,
1: and what a great you know metaphor and just a great perspective for anyone going through anything in life right you know just like how how do i overcome this next obstacle where's the opportunity in something like yeah. this um
0: We talk a lot about an opportunity mindset that, you know, Mm. I think it's the old adage that when one door closes, another opens. But it's this idea that even when terrible things happen, COVID, I mean, nobody has loved living through a pandemic. There's been a lot of challenges with it. But how many silver linings have we all discovered in the process? Right. Right? There's a number of things we can do now we would never have done two years ago. And while no one would wish again for another pandemic, we can't deny that there were some lessons that we took that were pretty valuable. Mm.
1: And from working you know, for so many years with these clients, with these leaders mm-hmm. in these organizations, what have been some, some key takeaways uh, from working with CEOs with different backgrounds, different perspectives, different industries? Is there some common grounds that you've noticed and been like, wow, this really surprised me?
0: I think the thing that's um, struck me most recently working in a number of CEOs is the, the ones that are most successful long-term have a really nice balance of humility and um, vision that they're willing to go execute and, and maybe make some people unhappy to, ex- to implement, right? So, so it's, this, it's this knowledge that I know a few things and I know where I'm trying to head and I feel this is something we need to go do. So I'm going to make it happen. But I'm also acknowledging that I, as a leader, do not know all of the things that I might need to know, that I'm relying on my team and external factors. I'm going to learn things along the way. And so I might be wrong about some things and being okay with that
1: like humility
0: was, plus force of vision.
1: And what are some things that you've learned that CEOs have learned from their mistakes? Like what are some key mistakes that our listeners can learn from others oh. to maybe, you know, at least be aware yeah. of in their organizations?
0: Yeah, I have a couple that come to mind cuz they come up so so often in our client organizations is if you've got that team member who's disruptive and difficult, particularly at a senior executive level, the first time you think maybe they're not a good fit is when you should be taking action to move them on. Mm-hmm. Don't continue to wait. I, I find it amazing that you know, if our receptionist isn't doing a good job, they're gone in a couple of weeks. But if a senior executive vice president is not doing well, we they linger for three, five years. And it's like what at the comment I get most often from CEOs when they finally let go of that senior person who's not working out is, why didn't I do that two years ago? Because it transforms the team. We, the principle we use is called you stand for what you tolerate. Is a leadership principle that we, that we think about a lot is that the worst behavior that you're willing to tolerate on your team or in your organization is what your culture is going to be driven by. And it's what people are going to think you as a leader stand for. So if you're tolerating a behavior that is really unacceptable to you, stop tolerating it, act on it, give the person the ample opportunity to change their behavior. But if they can't or won't, then it's time to move on. It's not a good fit. and be brave enough to say so
1: it's been a common theme you know throughout this conversation like how important the culture is um now you have mentioned a few times like mergers and acquisitions have you dealt with or managed or helped manage like post merger integration at all
0: (laughs) yeah and it's uh it's always um a fascinating thing because the financial guys make this great pitch for why this is going to be an awesome thing and they usually don't think about the culture very much. Right. So I've seen a few of them that we've been involved with. Um, one I remember was a, a big uh, biotech company bought a smaller biotech company because they had overlapping product areas. It was going to expand their portfolio, mm. but the acquiring organization was very technology driven and very technology forward. And the one that was being acquired was very sales driven. Mm. Well, you couldn't have had two different cultures. And so, had, you know, all the value really evaporated from that acquisition as it went forward. They kept some of the best people, but it, it um, I'm sure that those financial spreadsheets were completely inaccurate by the time you, two years later, it's like, where was the value? Right? It was, it was. So we like to get involved early, but if we're coming in afterwards, it's trying to redefine what is a new culture going to be? Is, is the acquiring entity going to impose their culture, in which case they need to recognize you're going to lose a lot of people and make sure they don't lose the value out of that organization they just acquired or are they going to try to come up with some kind of a hybrid or a transition plan which is usually a little bit more successful but if you're the 800 pound gorilla you want your culture to win and sometimes that's just how it is
1: right and and where do you like to get in in that process is in like in the due diligence stage like where okay
0: yeah we prefer to show up at due diligence because we can identify some some costs and risks that aren't necessarily on the spreadsheet right and help really? evaluate key personnel and, and who you need to keep and, and why and what some of the challenges are going to be. And
1: and go into that a little bit more because I'm just kind curious. Where in the balance sheet do do you look first?
0: So I typically look at um, first of all, how does how, what makes this company successful and is that compatible with what the just because your products are similar, how you go to market is completely can be completely different. This one competes on price and that one's competing on features. That, that that's going to be a challenge, right? So we need to know what that looks like, first of all. And then then you're looking at the personnel who actually execute that. Who are you trying to keep? And how are they going to react to this shift in culture? And, and you, know, you may keep people, but their hearts aren't in it, then you're not going to really get your money's worth. So that's what we look at, personnel and then strategy.
1: And a lot of uh, private equity firms, uh, you know, when they are... Doing their due diligence, they'll have their own checklists, right? Like they'll make sure that they go through and they check up all the boxes. Uh, does yep. your approach have to align <laughs> with their um, acquisition team? Like, does it, do you have to have your own checklist? Do you, and how do you like to work when you're um, trying to, you know, go and uncover all those corners within the company?
0: So, so when we're able, we go and we do a culture assessment on the on both sides of the transaction. So that we can sort of see where the mismatch but we do it as a top to bottom organizational assessment and that's our that's our beginning point of the checklist and then we look for you know go to market strategy uh personnel strategy compensation strategy key people and we go through that list And it's, um some of the items will overlap with the financial teams the transaction teams but they're not going in the, quite the same level of depth they're looking at with a different lens hmm.
1: And what to you when you're reviewing these organizations strike you as this is going to be, I have a pretty strong confidence that this organization is going to be a great fit. And then on the opposite yeah. side, what's an indicator to say, I'm pretty confident that this is not going to work?
0: So honestly, culture, okay. it, do, they, do they value the same things? It's huge because if they don't, even if the goes through, the, wow. a lot of personnel yeah. will leave. And the second one is the go-to-market strategy. Are they close enough? Can they become compatible? If we throw away the the go-to-market the different go-to-market strategy, is it gonna really add value? Hmm.
1: It, it's amazing. I mean, I've I just keep reading like I think it was like eighty or ninety percent of these acquisitions fail because of culture. Yeah. And it's that's just so bizarre to me <laughs> because after you do that, deal, it, it's done. And
0: yeah, I and mean, these yeah. transaction, um, the financial folks that are putting them together really um I think it would make a lot more financial sense to invest in. The culture work up front before they do the transaction you could even if you could take it from 90 percent failure to 75 percent failure that'd be a big financial win and
1: i am curious to know i you know laura we're in the impact space we deal with a lot of certified b corporations um mm-hmm. we we have a good sense of that culture and we are certified b corps ourselves um is yeah. that an investment risk for an, an incoming investors who maybe are not in this space because of that culture being so proud, so strong that if a big organization, let's say like a Walmart were to acquire a food distribution company or a food producer who is a certified B Corp, would that would that be a problem as in from an investment side?
0: It's definitely a, a big potential risk that you'd want to highlight and understand how you're integrating and I mean I'm we're B Corp and we we understand this ethos and it's very different from you know very large publicly traded companies that are not B Corps. Um, you can just look in the in the press to sort of see how people are paid and compensated, how you treat team members and some of those organizations would be difficult for many B Corps to, to um, sign up for. So you, might, you may lose some of the employees and the ethos. Also, when you're a, a B Corp, often in the articles of incorporation, you have to um, consider um, all stakeholders when you take on any sort of M&A activity. So it's possible that it would be more challenging to get through that due diligence.
1: Right. And on the flip side, uh, we do see a movement going toward this stakeholder capitalism approach, yep. right? You know, yep. B Corp, I saw increase like 40% in new certifications, yeah. right? 4,500, like 200,000 applications. Um, it's great. On the flip side, is that maybe even a good thing, you know, for a lot of organizations trying to acquire that culture, trying to acquire this um, sense of purpose driven capitalism?
0: I think it's terrific. So, if Walmart were to acquire a B Corp and decide to themselves become a B Corp, I mean that would be an amazing accomplishment. I think
1: that'd be terrific.
0: And I think that consumers and um, you know, B2B customers as well are looking a lot more at the ethics of the companies they do business with. And being a certified B Corp is still considered the highest, most ethical uh, version of, of that that's out there. So, I can see that there will be more interest in it over time. Um, And I think it would be fantastic if we get some of these larger companies to embrace that ethos.
1: Interesting. Where where do you see this going, Laura, uh, in terms of uh, Mm because I'm sure if you were working with a lot of B Corps, they maybe get, you know, the culture. They get kind of how that manifests and transcends, if you will, into their bottom line. Where where do you see this movement going um, in terms of adoption?
0: I think it's really just the next generation of that CSR culture, cor- corporate um, social responsibility movement. Mm-hmm. So we've moved from that to the UN's SDGs, and I think B Corp uh, certification is just one way of um, being very transparent and clear to the public that you're adhering to some higher set of standards. So I, I see that as as becoming increasing in demand across all sectors, you can see it's beginning to happen now. With, the conscious capitalism movement. There's several non b Corp uh, movements as well that are headed in the same direction. So I think that that's going to uh, become an increasing driver both for investors and consumers uh, to be looking at who are the companies I'm doing business with, and do they support my values?
1: Mm. Lord, this, I think you're an interesting case because you know I, it's rare that I find you know someone with your experience who owns uh, you know leadership uh, group that's a B Corp as well. Like, tell us a little bit about your background before Transcend, how you got to this point, why you're passionate about it, and then also just, you know, what made you decide to become a B Corp?
0: So, um, my background was, I worked in strategy consulting in Japan, and then I worked in consumer products, with Coca-Cola and Procter & Gamble, so really big names. Um, so I'd experienced the corporate world, and there were some really great things about those organizations, their decision-making, their strategy, really, really smart places to work, for sure. But um, there were some things missing as well. You know, it was sort of hard to get behind, uh, for myself, sort of the social impact of some of the products we sold. It's like, is this really making the world a better place to sell more soft drinks? Uh, I had some real questions for myself about that, if that was really um, value-added for the world, certainly um, for the company it was. So when I came and started my own consulting firm, one of the things I started with at the very beginning before I knew there was a B Corp movement was that I wanted to build the kind of company I wanted to work for that had the highest ethical standards, treated people well, whether it was our customers or our employees, it was super transparent. And so when I found the B Corp movement, um, I just knew that it was something we needed to do. And uh, we, we certified it in 2016. Uh, first time through, we easily qualified because we were doing most of that stuff anyway.
1: It's it's great timing, too, in 2016. And, and just to think, yeah. you know, that's really when this whole thing kicked off. What were, what was the conversation like at that time? Uh, were, were people familiar with Certified B Corporations? Tell our listeners kind of <laughs> what that time was like.
0: No, yeah, it was. Um, so I've been kind of thinking about uh, corporate forms and shareholder primacy since the late 90s, because I'd seen some of the literature around it and was aware of the benefit corporation movement. But I wasn't sure that it was something we could get involved with. Um, and for, for me, it was really, uh, there was not a clear, um, benefit to my marketing efforts in being a certified B Corp. It's more about sort of feeling good that we're doing the right things that someone from the outside is looking at it and saying, you guys are running the kind of company that helps the world and the community and not just yourselves. Um uh, but there were so few, uh, companies out there doing this kind of work. Uh, I think we were in the first 2000 companies certified. It wasn't a very large number at the time. Um, and it was a little shocking. It still is. Frankly, we're, we're based in the South and we're one of the few B Corps in our community. Um, in fact, we're the only one in our state. <laughs> so it's still a, a conversation about how do we um, use it as a platform to talk about why did we become a B Corp and why should other people become B Corps and why is this just the responsible thing to do for our society and for our world?
1: And many social entrepreneurs have this theory of change. You just talked yeah. about in the 90s, you kind of had this understanding. And th- you know, what was the thesis that you developed at that time that you're still testing and maybe you're, you're pretty firm on now?
0: So the idea that um, businesses take resources from the community and that it should be giving back more than it takes. So this idea that uh, starting a business that, you know, I'm the primary stake shareholder, that I shouldn't be in this business just to enrich myself, but I'm giving back to the whole community. And that by being a business that thinks about all the stakeholders and not just the shareholders, that ultimately you could be more successful because you get buy-in from the people that ultimately are benefited by the business. And so I've seen that um, certainly as we've been a business uh, as long as we have now, people, when they talk about ethical standards and who's ethical in the organization, they do talk about us a lot and come back to us, sort of, these are the people that you can trust. Uh, It builds a certain kind of equity. Uh, for us in our communities and with our customers.
1: And Laura, what, what kind of leadership is it going to take to have people who are those primary stakeholders or shareholders mm-hmm. in the organization, organization, if you will, to understand this concept and articulate it and keep hammering it until this world is, you know, alongside your movement?
0: I think it's a lot of a challenge for many people that have um, been raised to believe that business is there in order to enrich shareholders. You know, they're, uh, they they want to be shareholders, they want to start companies primarily so that they can have an economic gain. Uh, I certainly believe in everybody having a, a reasonably successful economic life. Right, <laughs> it's not about being poor, but it is about making sure that we're giving back. And I think it's going to take a shift for people to see that um, the model that we have, where the shareholders simply reap all the rewards and take all the value from organizations is unsustainable. We'll look at some of the um, inequalities in our society and some of the challenges we're faced, uh, certainly in the United States at this point is because so many, the few have taken so many resources away from the many. Hmm. And if that's unsustainable, eventually the many, you know, are not able to do many of the things we would expect them to do, not being educated, not having a decent place to live. There's, there's challenges that then undermine the, infrastructure for everyone and that there's a benefit in investing in the community and society you live in for everyone including yourself that goes well beyond the monetary gains of keeping it all
1: and so the question becomes for organizations that are not certified b corp and are Mm -hmm. not purpose driven do you recommend you know they make this culture shift and do you think many companies are going to be able to do that
0: I've been super encouraged by some of the the big organizations that have taken this on. I think Danon took it on two years ago, and It's it's huge organization it's I think it's much more difficult to certify as a large company. It's a lot more moving parts and a lot of things to change um, than it is as a small organization. But uh, I'm encouraged that some of them are undertaking that. I think that it's it's a big decision. So just like any other large decision, it needs to be socialized and thought about as a strategy, and you really have to back up and say, why are we doing this is it part of our vision for the value we create in the world and then make a commitment because i would think for most large companies it's a couple of years of work to get to the point where you can certify
1: absolutely yeah and and i think you know for for the work that you're doing i think you're definitely playing a a big role in this because there are going to be a lot of leaders and organizations that you know the name speaks for itself the fearless company you know and and who has the courage to to make these changes and and have that lasting impact uh, in the world. So uh, Laura Huckabee Jennings, let's bring this home. What is your definition of a real leader?
0: So I think I alluded to it earlier, Kevin, but really this, um, when I think about fearlessness, I think about humility makes a real leader and someone who's uh, transparent and honest, authentic. Um, And I I mean, on this authenticity, People get confused a bit because they think, well, if I'm, you know, pretending to be more confident than I am, that's not authentic. But what we mean is authentic to your intentions. What is the change you're trying to make in the world? And you aligning your behaviors to your true intentions and not just doing what you feel like. Are you motivated by your vision and not just the whim of the moment or what feels good or what what I like to do? Well um, and those are those are what I would think is real leaders. They're, they're they have a their place they're going and change they're trying to make in the world, not just in you know my pocketbook, <laughs> but in the world. I want the world to be a better place in some way. And I am fearless and relentless in pursuing that and being humble about learning lessons along the way.
1: Well put for Laura Huckabee Jennings. I'm Kevin Ewers asking you to go out there, be authentic to your intentions, and always, folks, keep it real. Thank you, Laura.
0: Thanks, Kevin.